to Amateur All Tours, the podcast where every week we sit down and have a discussion about a movie. I'm your host, Mike, and joining me is my brother, Brian, and we would like to welcome you to Amateur All Tours. Alright, welcome to the show, guys. Uh, I'm back with uh, Dana, and uh, you know, we're going to actually sit down, as previously discussed, and talk, uh, talk some shop. So, Dana, uh, when I reached out to you, I really was interested in, uh, you know, when I when I met with the uh, amateur filmmaker Chris uh, Foster, we uh, sat down and talked about um, Nightcrawler, uh, a film that, you know, was a big, that, big inspiration for him and his film, and, you know, we just sat down, had like a nice discussion about it. Um, for this one, uh, I, I suggested um, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, Phantom Thread, and... I think just you know with schedules and it is a very long film that it it'd be better we can t- we can talk specifically about Phantom Thread as well. I I did uh, watch the film and take some interesting right. notes about it. Um, I think I'm more interested in the themes and what Phantom Thread is in the canon of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson uh, because what I love about Paul Thomas Anderson is from you know his first film and and I I'll, I'll be the fir- like right off the bat I haven't. I've seen a majority of his films. I think I I haven't seen Hard okay. Eight, uh, and I think that's it honestly. Uh, so I think the only one I'm missing is Hard Eight. Um, I've seen, but I did see the short that it's based off of Coffee and Cigarettes or Cigarettes and Coffee, whichever the the um I have seen the the short, and um, and I'm a big fan of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, and it's interesting watching him as a filmmaker grow from you know his beginnings to phantom thread and i think that's i think that's definitely something that i haven't especially talking with someone uh that's not my twin brother um who paul thomas anderson's one of his favorite directors um i haven't really met anyone that has you know seen his canon of films that actually have that in-depth conversation with right and and paul thomas anderson is such an anomaly in this day and age in the sense that here's a guy that gets to make these movies that I, I mean, I, I can't even explain how he even gets them made in this film culture anymore. It just doesn't make any sense. And yet, uh, every couple of years, he comes out with effectively what is a masterpiece. And the first question I always have, and we'll get into his entire career, is <laughs> who's financing these films? Because they're not making, they're not big blockbuster films. And so to me, so to me, that's always yeah. sort of the biggest anomaly about about Paul Thomas Anderson is is he makes these brilliant films that don't make any money. I mean, There Will Be Blood made some money. Boogie Nights made some money. Magnolia. Um, but uh, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, I mean, they were awards darlings, but they were blips on the maps. And I, and I study box office mm-hmm. weekend and week out. That's just one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in. And um, so the first, the first thing I always have to say is, is, what a lucky guy. I mean, this guy gets to make these masterpiece films, and there's not a bad PTA film. It doesn't exist. Uh, as, as a very good friend of mine who's been on the show multiple times, uh, his name is Jim Hemphill, where, who I'm absolutely going to put you in touch with because because oh, he awesome. <laughs> is the authority on Paul Thomas Anderson. He's interviewed him. He has, you know, and he's oh. and he is he is fantastic. So, I saw. I don't even know where to begin. He, he, I, I get excited just thinking about about Anderson. Um, oh yeah, 
he's definitely one of those directors that like it, especially for like movie buffs like us you say his name or like you just hear like just like on the like on the web you just hear like he's making a new film and you're like I, I don't know I gotta know everything I have to know everything because you know what he's gonna make is going to be like you said a masterpiece for, I've seen Heart 8 Heart 8 is a film that is top is Paul Thomas Anderson he is inside a box he is constrained he is not he is he is not getting the full support of the studio that is helping to to make this film it shows a little bit on screen okay he is being i can promise you he's getting a lot of what what they call script notes every day they are not making not letting him make the film he wants to make it's still a very good film with some incredibly interesting performances by John C. Riley and Philip Baker Hall. And it's a fun movie, and it's it's definitely one of his more mainstream. That's not saying it's a mainstream film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one of his most mainstream films. But you can tell that he was, for a lack of a better term, handcuffed trying to make that film. Yeah. And that's I, I just I, he's such an interesting filmmaker and like that's why like, I've actually was talking about I was comparing him to Quentin Tarantino um not too long ago and like Tarantino makes great films but especially as I'm I think I feel like he's the teenager uh one that he acts like one but we won't get into that but he's I think he's the you know the 13 to 20 year old director and that, like, yes, he makes like very competent films. I think *Inglorious Bastards* is a work of art, but to me, I don't really see much growth as a filmmaker. Um, and and this this might be a little like of a controversial statement. I think he's kind of devolved as a filmmaker uh, from *Pulp Fiction* and *Jackie Brown*, um, because in my opinion, you know, *Kill Bill*, *Death Proof*. Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight. He's re he's to me he's remaking classic films, uh, or he's taking elements from classic films and just kind of stuff. Stu- he really walks that line of homage and copying, in my opinion. And whereas Paul Thomas Anderson, to me, I think viewing from you know his first early shorts to Phantom Thread, you can sense that maturity yeah. of just a young filmmaker to someone that is you know getting a little he's you know a little a little older a little wiser and uh and like with phantom thread in my opinion he's a little bit more subdued but i think especially following the master and inherent vice uh two films that i think can be really polarizing um Especially Inherent Vice. Uh, that took me like three times to fully watch to under like the kind of understand what was going on. Um, but yeah, that's why I, I love watching his his growth through just his you know his lexicon of films. So this is where we're going to get into a, a friendly debate. Uh, to bring it back to Tarantino just for a moment, I um, and you make a very very valid point when you talk about how. With hateful a Django, Death Proof, Kill Bill, these are these are homages. Some might even say ripoffs in some in some cases. Uh, to, but I think he is getting better as a filmmaker. I'm going to just slightly disagree with you in mm-hmm. that you mentioned Inglorious Bastards. Uh, the debate with my friends, it, there's no debating anymore. We all agree that Inglorious Bastards is his 
opus, his 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 oh, yes. greatest work. Uh, it's a movie that I can sit down and watch. And we're not gonna. I promise, we're not gonna talk Tarantino this entire episode. It's, it's PTA. I know that. I know that. But um, <laughs> oh, yeah, but, we're talking but, shop. It's all right. <laughs> you're right in the sense that Pulp Fiction and and Jackie Brown are they are they are they are Tarantino at his purest in the sense that I mean this is it's what he does and what he does best. He does the genre pic- genre pictures very very well as as well. I mean I I race to see a Tarantino film when it comes out. I believe everything comes full circle when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood comes out next year, which is the new Tarantino film based on the yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 the same way. I like I I may say this and have these like kind of like I guess like somewhat controversial claims, but like Again, he can make damn great movies when he like I, I'm the same way. Uh, I I um like I said I saw the Hateful Eight on the Roadshow. I uh, uh actually Django is funny. Like that's a very special movie to me because it was my first Tarantino movie in theaters. Um, when when his newest film comes out, I'm gonna if it's on a Roadshow, you you can bet I'm gonna be at the AFI and getting a seat and, and sitting there and watching it on. Hopefully, if he releases it in 70 millimeter. Um, or if he shoots it in seventy millimeter, I'm definitely gonna see it in there. Uh, so I, I I can definitely appreciate his craft, but you know sure. I can still have my you know sure. reservations about him as a filmmaker. But can I just say um, can I just say yes. that just just to date myself a little bit, uh, I was in high school in 1994 uh, when my friends and I went to go see Pulp Fiction in the theater, and I had seen Reservoir Dogs because it had been out on video, uh, but we again this is before the internet. I mean the internet was in its infant stages, so. I hadn't even put the fact that you know Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction were by the same the same guy like that. Just I mean, I didn't get the trade papers and I wasn't really up to date on it. So I can tell you, seeing Pulp Fiction in the theater was one of the probably top three movie going moments of my entire life. So, so um, and I've seen every subsequent Tarantino film in the theater since then. so yeah, but you know, and I'm I've always said that he gets better as a filmmaker, but you make a very very valid point that I haven't really picked up on and that is he is he is he is he's doing mm-hmm. homages with these films. So so I I I will concede to you that. But again, I believe we're <laughs> going to get Tarantino at his very best in the next film. And I hope I'm I hope I'm I I hope I'm correct. I don't want to be proven wrong on that one cuz it, it, Oh, I I'm with you. I hope it's. I hope this is his best. I hope this beats Inglorious Bastards because in my mind, Inglorious Bastards it's such like it's such on like, it it's it wasn't always on that high pedestal. But like going back and review and like rewatching and showing my friends and them watching them thoroughly enjoyed it got me really hyped. But and even just watching on my own and um, hopefully Brian and I can talk about it because uh, he loves a spaghetti western. Um, I I I I love I and I just his stories. I love, but I, I also, I'm with you. I'm really hoping when I heard he was making a Manson film, I was, oh man, I was so pumped. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about Inglorious Bastards is to this day, it is the only movie that I ever got out of the theater, walked out uh, the theater lobby, out the doors and turned right back around and bought a ticket and went right back into the next showing because I, 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 that's how much I was just, just blown away. But let's bring it back to Paul Thomas Anderson oh, yeah. for a moment. So I want to go a little bit into Boogie Nights because I did see that in the theater. And that mm-hmm. was – but you mentioned The Master just for a moment. The first time I saw The Master, I – eh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, no, uh, great, great performances. Uh, 
Joaquin is outstanding. I mean, every, everybody in the film is, is outstanding. I didn't know a thing about Scientology. Mm. I, had, I, yeah. had, I had heard the name Scientology. I didn't know anything about it. I walk past the Scientology bookstore on my way to work every day. You know, I see <laughs> the Dianetics books out there. But I didn't know what Scientology was. So I didn't understand sort of the context of the movie. So mm-hmm. once I saw the movie, it made me want to go, okay, wait a second. Let's take a look at Scientology a little bit deeper. And when I get interested in a subject, I dive deep. And so I started reading all I could, watching all the documentaries, and I went back and watched The Master. And my God, I can't tell you if it's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, but it's 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 right there. I think it is unbelievable. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I never because so I most recently watched it after the viewing of Phantom Thread because um uh my girlfriend at the time now ex but we had gone in date night we saw Phantom Thread and um and and I t- and she's really into true crime and stuff. I'm like, well, like the master and especially when the trailers came out, like she was there when I watched them or like the first trailer and I was like, oh, it looks like the master. She's like, well, what's that? And I told her about it and then. After and I said, yeah, I said Phantom Thread looks like a more subdued version of the Master, just based off the trailer. Yeah. And then she's like, well, now I really want to see the Master. And then we watched the Master, and this was the first time I actually, I'll admit, like saw it in its entirety. And I definitely didn't know how to feel about it after. I mean, I definitely enjoyed it, but it's one of those. And that's the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson, like his movies, very much. I think, kind of in a way that I view Terry Gilliam, just. Except Terry Gilliam has, like, the weird, like, surrealism in his work, where Paul Thomas Anderson has that, like, intellectual, uh, I want to come back and better understand what's going on. His his movies make you question, uh, and I think what the beauty of him is you could, you could watch the film and have one perspective, and then come back, let's say, like, two years, you know, a little, wi- little older, a little wiser, like him, and you don't have a completely different experience. And I think that that, you know, speaks volumes to him as an auteur, um... But yeah, that's something I never really thought about is actually like looking into Scientology, and I'm sure that might even alter my perception as it did yours. It, it, it's really, it, it really, I don't want to say it's beat for beat. I mean, it's clearly he's telling the story of L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, that is what the master is about. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, I just banged my microphone. I'm sorry. Oh, so clear. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, clearly he's telling the story about L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, right down to the fact that Hubbard had the boat and took the people out. And I mean, I mean, it's that's what it is. Not knowing that the first time, not knowing anything about Scientology, watching the match the first time, I didn't get it. Watching it a second time with a firm grasp and understanding, I found it just incredibly fascinating. And I need to touch on Terry Gilliam just for a moment because, and I'm, I'm get, again, I'm in the minority on this one, but I have not really been a fan of his movies for the reasons you've cited. I, I I prefer what Anderson does far better. Um, I saw I remember seeing Leaving Las Vegas. Oh, excuse me, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in the theater in I say ninety eight or something like that, and um, I, I I I I was so unsettled during that entire movie, and I've I've had that issues with him ever since. And prior to that, I didn't even like Time Bandits. Uh, or you know, or Brazil. I'm, and he's got a new. He's got a new. You know, finally, his Don Quixote movie is finally going to come out. He's been working on this thing for twenty years, 
And I don't even know if I want to see it because his, his, I've always found his movies to be unsettling for, for a reason I can't fully grasp, Mike. I can't understand why. I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit more on Terry Gilliam sometime. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. And and it's funny, like, I think the reason, like, one of the reasons I think I love, you know, Terry Gilliam, just, you know, staying on this, like, just a sure. quick tangent, sure. is I also love David Lynch, mm-hmm. and I just love that surreal, it's actually, like, the most recent short films that I made are, like, heavily inspired from, like, the weird, like, the, like the weirdest side of David Lynch, so, I, like, you know loving Twin Peaks, especially with the return, like the, right. the return last year, uh, you know, watching Blue Velvet and, you know, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, like all these, we- and all, even his shorts, uh, and like I, the ABC and the Amputee, like you're just like, this is weird and I like it and I don't really know why. And I love, I love David Lynch. That's the thing. Like, if, I don't know what it is about Terry Gilliam. I don't, I can't explain what it is. It's, and maybe it's because I've preconditioned myself to be that way, but uh, Mulholland Mahal- Drive is amazing. Like that is a, Again, I hate to keep throwing around the words, but that's a masterpiece. I mean, that is an incredible film. So, oh, yeah. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just... Oh, no, no. I, it's, I, I, it's, 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 very, it's not very often that, I'm, I, that I can, you know, have this, uh, this like, stream of consciousness, but still related. Uh, we'll, get, like, we'll get back to, like, P.T. Anderson's, like, the overhang, but, like, sure. we're going in, like, yeah. the subsections. But it's, very, it's not very often that I can have, like, a conversation with this with, you know, you know another movie buff. But, um... And also, like it's it's mutually we understand what's going on, but um, yeah, I, but yeah, Terry Gilliam, he's I've definitely haven't he's I haven't explored his work the most out of out of like the directors we've talked about so far. I mean, I've seen you know Brazil, Twelve Monkeys, um, all obviously his Monty Python work, but um, and Brazil, oh, like Fear and Loathing, obviously as well. Um, but his work is definitely, I think I'm with you. Like I love David Lynch and I don't want to say like, I'm part of like the church of David Lynch. Cause I definitely am like, yeah, you can get a little pretentious a little bit, but, um, yeah, there is something about his style that I think is a little bit more unsettling than Lynch, which I think is definitely something that it, it hits a different note. Um, well, I but, think, I think, and I think we're just exploring the idea right now. I think I go into a David Lynch film expecting, you know, to be, I don't want to use the word unsettled because I, that's not the reaction I get, but you, you, certain directors, you go in and you, you, you have expectations. I mm-hmm. think with Gilliam, his, he, he's kind of all over the place with each film. And so mm-hmm. he doesn't have that, that Tarantino tone or that Paul Thomas Anderson tone that especially in Anderson's later films, there's just, you know there's there's a tone to the film, where where with Gilliam it is, each movie is unique in its own, and that's to be you know, that that's to his credit. Now he you know I'm certainly not saying these are bad movies by any stretch of the mm-hmm. imagination, but I'm saying that I, I I think I think a lot of preconditioning goes into into with me into into seeing certain directors' films, and I think I I had such a jarring experience with Fear and Loathing that. That any subsequent film that he did after that, I was like, oh well, here we go, you know. And mm-hmm. I wa- I watched that, and I, there's part of me feels horrible for him because I watched that documentary about him trying to get Don Quixote made, and I mean, a lesser director would have just given up on filmmaking after that experience. Uh-huh. So it's not this. Uh, I don't. I, I think I think I'm just 
I'm preconditioning myself to to not like Terry Gilliam films. I respect them, but I'm not a personal fan of them. Oh yeah, and and like and to each his own. I mean, that's yeah. like kind of the beauty of this medium is like we could respectfully like uh, agree to disagree and like just and and but and that doesn't like your opinion doesn't and I think a lot of people kind of lose this idea. It's like just because you don't like a filmmaker, or you don't like something, doesn't mean I can't. And I think most people get offended when yeah, that's, they when someone disagrees with them. That that is that is something that I mean we could do a whole episode on that oh, because yeah. that is that is the it's the strangest thing. You know when I was. 20 years old you know if I would see a movie with a couple friends we would walk out of the theater which think I liked it oh I didn't like it it was all right okay cool where are we going to eat you know like it was it you know it was I I want to hear other people's opinions I want to I want to hear why somebody loves something that I didn't or vice versa why didn't Mm -hmm. why didn't you love this movie like I loved it you're certainly not wrong Art, art is subjective. Movies are art. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, but it, in in the in the in the, the the online social media world we live in now, I mean, you you give one dissenting opinion from the masses, and you're you're kind of ripped apart for it. I love having healthy debates and healthy conversations about films because I, my, sometimes my ideas are changed, like the whole Tarantino thing you said. About you know, it didn't click. Yes, he's doing homages. He's not doing more. He's not doing these original stories like he was with the first ones, and that's a breakthrough moment for me that I will now have moving forward. So mm-hmm. I, I get incredibly frustrated when what you're talking about this debate, yeah, this this you're wrong if you like something and I don't, or vice versa. It's it's the, the polarization of film loving or hating or whatever we want to call it. It's it's gotten to the point where i don't even know what to do anymore yeah and i, I have a funny little anecdote and then we'll get right into um paul thomas anderson because i think his work also uh it seems like amongst the film co- community at least uh and from my movie buff friends he's either which is which is funny enough like he seems in my group of friends at least a very like you love him or you don't like him which is like i don't understand how you can't like him but my anecdote of like kind of going into this um, is in the form of La La Land, uh, Damien Chazelle. Love Damien Chazelle. I, Lip, Whiplash is one of my favorite films. Absolutely. And La La Land, when it came out last year, um, I was super excited. I remember listening, like hearing about it and just being really pumped because I absolutely loved Whiplash. It was very instrumental. Um, I have, well, not pardon the pun, but like uh, I even have the, um, the, uh, the soundtrack on vinyl. I love jazz music. I love listening to uh, that soundtrack and then just like, just shredding the drums and then la la land came out and i i love musicals musicals are my guilty pleasure uh sound of music is my fifth favorite movie of all time which kind of surprises people um and uh and like that's not you know like it's i mean it's classic hollywood but it's not like singing in the rain or anything so i was like oh like what's and and i and i'd seen his first film uh guy madeline on a park bench now i have my own reservations about that uh as a as a student thesis it's great as a film it's so so but uh, so La La Land comes out, and I saw it, and that's a funny experience too. So I, I saw it with Brian and his girlfriend, and we actually saw a special. Well, so we saw it on the day it came out, or like the night before. Like it, say it comes out on a Friday, they have the Thursday showings. So we saw it, but 
on Thursday night, and we actually somehow got into like a special screening. Uh, one of the music composers, um, not the guy that went to Harvard with Damien uh, Chazelle, but the other guy, his name's like Benjin or Benj. His he's from that area that we saw the movie in, and they had like a special screening. Like all his friends and family came, filled up the movie theater, and they had a special um, like uh, like uh, like message from him and the main composer. And I was like, wow, what did I walk into? So then I saw the movie, and I I enjoy I enjoy La La Land. Uh, it does have you know I have my critiques of it, but for like all in all, I thought it's great. I thought the ending like the last fifteen minutes are amazing. And and so I go home and I tell my parents, hey, I think you guys would really like this. So they're back. So my dad uh, lives in Maryland for his job. And so uh, my, mo- my mom goes down there uh, like for the weekend. And they're like, oh, let's go see this movie the boys have been talking about. Now, down in Maryland, the closest good movie theater is an hour away. So they drive an hour to the movie theater. They, they get the full reclining seats. And they see the movie. They give me a call right after. And they say, we hated it. Oh. And I was like, oh, no. Like, I felt horrible because I made, like, I, I was, like, really talking this movie up. I saw it three times in theaters. But then I talked to my, I, I go, I actually, next time I see them, and I say, hey, like, what guy, what'd you guys not like about it? And, like, they gave their critiques. But then, now, I'm going to call out my dad a little bit. Uh, my parents are a little older, like, mid-60s or early 60s. And my dad started making it very, like, personalized attack against me. And saying like oh you're like i was what 21 at the time he's like oh you're 21 you don't know what what real musicals are like it's okay like kind of being a little condescending and and then i'm like dad like i love gene kelly i love fred astaire i have you know uh, the umbrellas of churnberg in my collection and it's just like i've i've been to broadway shows i i love musical theater i've seen musical theater amateur and professional i know musicals and he just couldn't it just somehow there's like and this goes into like that tangent goes into this idea that if i don't like it you're like completely wrong it's like it's like suddenly like a politicized issue and it's like i just like a movie i'm sorry but it's you know (laughs) it's that's an interesting thing you said about um you felt bad because you you had talked them into seeing the film that that still gets me too when I when I just compl- just wholeheartedly re- recommend something, like you have to see this movie, you have to watch this TV show, you have to, and then I get the response back like, yeah, it was a, it was all right, yeah, yeah it was, a, and I'm just like, what, what didn't you love about, it? you know, um, <laughs> but to talk about uh, La La Land for a second, and 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 again, I I hope I don't lose my 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 street cred or my movie card or whatever you want to call it. But I have yet to see La La Land because, for some reason, it's, okay. it's for <laughs> for some reason. And I, let me preface that by saying, Whiplash was amazing, and and mm-hmm. and and J.K. Simmons well deserved Oscar milestone teller. Uh, I've seen that movie four times. I I I can't get enough of it every time I see it. Well, you want to talk about? You know, they have that saying: always leave them wanting more. The way that film ends. When it just comes up to the crescendo and then just blank, like I mm-hmm. every time I just want just just give me thirty seconds more, just give me one yeah, minute just... more, please. Uh, so I love I love Whiplash, but for for whatever reason, La La Land has never interested me to the point where I've been able to take two hours out of my incredibly busy schedule and say, 
okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a go. Could be that I'm not the yeah. biggest Emma Stone fan. That could play into it. Um, I love Ryan Gosling. I know, fellow Canadian. How how can I not? But um, <laughs> I think based on what you said, I'm gonna give it a try. I'm I'm gonna watch it because you know you you were very honest. You said it, it's 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 got its issues, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Yeah, and just giving like a quick. Like, I think when it wants to be a music... And like, actually, I watched it recently with one of my friends, uh, like, a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh, this this kind of holds up. Like, the hype's died down, uh, like, for me. Um, I think when it wants to be, a, like, a Hollywood musical... It, it's kind of... It's, it's, like, subverting, like, the traditional Hollywood... Or, like, you know, 1950s musical um, in its own way. Uh, now, I just, you know, I have issues with it. But the, when it does it really well, it does it well, in my personal opinion. I think the opening number is kind of like modernizing the, like, singing in the rain kind of, uh, you know, big, extravagant musical. Even even the details, uh, like the, like, I think it even, it just, it, just feel, it just feels like a modern 1950s musical. And then the ending is definitely just harkens back to, you know, anything Gene Kelly. But, you know, it's, it's... It's it's but it's definitely you can feel the passion. It's definitely a passion project, and I love it when directors go for passion projects. Um, and and you know tying <laughs> tying that back, I just feel like with with P.T. Anderson, I just feel like almost everything he does, there's oh it's always some sort of a passion project. Well, I'm gonna agree with you on that one, and and just one more note on on mm-hmm. the passion project that was La La Land, incredibly well received. Uh, you know, Oscar Darling, even though it, and Best Picture winner for thirty five seconds, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, that's that's. I'm gonna watch that movie. I have to now. I have to um, bring it back to Paul Tom- Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the first time you saw Boogie Nights. Just you know, how old are you? Where where's so, that situation? At? What mean? What it's it's funny. I so. It, well, let me ask you this. Let, think, let, I'm sorry. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. What's the first Paul Thomas Anderson film you saw? So I'm pretty sure it was There Will Be Blood, and then shortly after it was Boogie Nights. Um, or it, it's it's one of those things like I'm pretty sure I first saw Boogie Nights not knowing it was Paul Thomas Anderson. Like I think I, you know, was I was a sophomore in high school, so that's when I wa- first watched both of those, and I remember. You know, this is when I started experimenting with, you know, let's let's get past mainstream. Let's get some, like, really classic films that you've heard great things about. Um, that's when I first tried watching 2001 A Space Odyssey. Did not understand it. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm on a, I'm on a roll right now. Let's uh, let's try and get a... Uh, I've, I've heard Boogie Nights, and I hear Don't Watch It With Your Parents, so that sounds like a good bet to me. Um, and, and, then I, and then there'll be blood. And so... I, I think it didn't really connect that both of those were the same director, but my first impressions of Boogie Nights was I didn't one I I didn't know what to expect, um, and I was so I was a sophomore in high school I guess I was guess I was sixteen, and and it's it's a it's a big movie to take on when you're sixteen and especially at that age you know like puberty's full swing man and you're just like okay this is interesting interesting and and but then there will be blood i think i didn't really again like i don't think i appreciated the films as i do now um i think i went back to boogie nights when i was a senior in high school uh you know understanding who paul thomas anderson was and you know 
a better appreciation for film in itself and and thoroughly enjoying it a lot more and picking up on the like nuances of his filmmaking and then same with there will be blood um i can't i can't tell what's his you know his biggest pe- which i like more either there will be blood or boogie nights i'm thinking boogie nights as a director because i think you know there will be blood is a fantastic film but it's I think I like it so much because of Daniel Day Lewis's sure. performance, because in my like, so and I and I actually have notes on his performance in in Phantom Thread, but like Boogie Nights to me is like, it's very much like Magnolia in that you know he's like really honing his craft with like his camera movements and just making this like really complex and real story, and and there will be blood. It's the same you know like very, uh, very. What's the word? Uh, just, just great cinematography and great storytelling. But I think it's funny when I when I was in line for Phantom Thread, I was you know buying popcorn, and this woman in front of me said, like, I guess they were seeing the film too, and they're like, oh, like, what's that new Daniel Day Lewis film? <laughs> and and I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And but my opinion of Phantom Thread is that this is Paul Thomas's Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson's film with Daniel Day Lewis, where There Will Be Blood is. Daniel Day Lewis's film with Paul Thomas Anderson, so that so that leads me to incline as a filmmaker or like as a film goer and like understanding the process. I think Boogie Nights is probably a better movie for Paul Thomas Anderson because it's like this is his storytelling, his his camera movements, his style is what's on like display here and not overshadowed by someone's performance. There's a scene in Boogie Nights that, and I'll I'll start by saying I Boogie Nights came out in '97. Uh, not something I saw. I don't know. I don't. I didn't see it in the theater because it had a very limited theatrical release. But I did see it very quickly when it came on a home video. I've seen it multiple times. Easily my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. I mean, hands down. It to me, it's it's still the benchmark for for each film that he does since then. Um, it's the more most straightforward narrative I think of, of any movie that he's done as far as keeping it still. I don't want to say for a commercial audience to make it easy for the masses to sort of digest, even though it's incredibly in your face in in several scenes and it's incredibly Mm -hmm. uncomfortable in several scenes. Uh, But there's a particular scene in the movie that I always sort of tell everybody when you watch Boogie Nights, there's a moment when when Dirk Diggler, Mark Wahlberg's character, He's he's at rock bottom and he's going he's gone to the drug dealer's house to sell a pound of baking soda or, or powdered sugar whatever it is, and that's loosely based on what happened with John Holmes and the notorious gangster Eddie Nash and and mm-hmm. and but he's he's so low he's sitting on the couch and Jesse's girl is playing of and, course and, classic and Anderson holds the camera on Mark Wahlberg's face I wouldn't even call it a close up a medium shot no a medium to close medium to medium to close up shot and he holds it on there nonstop for about a minute and 5 seconds and you just watch in awe as Mark Wahlberg who again amazing performance in this film you watch uh-huh. as the weight of everything that has happened to Dirk Diggler, his character in the movie, every decision that he's made, everything has brought him to this place. 
and you see it on his face. You see his expressions change as he's realizing his complete downward spiral has come to this. And there's no exposition explaining this. There's no dialogue explaining this. It's just, to me, one of the best shots that Anderson's done in any film he's ever made. And I'm still looking for him to capture that lightning in a bottle again. Because, again, if you've Mm -hmm. never seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you'll be like, well, he's really holding on Mark Wahlberg for a while. And then you just watch the expressions on Wahlberg's face change. It is unbelievable. I love it. I love that. It's my favorite part of the entire movie. Huh. I think my favorite segment... Funny enough, I, I mentioned Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood, but I think one of my favorite segments from any uh, P.T. Anderson film is from There Will Be Blood, like the baptism scene, when I think what, as a writer, Paul Paul Thomas Anderson really gets power struggles really well. And, my, and, and that's like, especially in The Master and in Phantom Thread and, you know, and really... And in, in, in that conflict between like two like really just strong immovable forces, um, in the, but in there will be blood when he Daniel Day Lewis's character has to uh, be baptized so he can get land to drill for oil, and it's just and and like the whole movies there's just this this build up between Paul Dano's character as the priest and and like now Daniel Day Lewis is um, has always had the upper hand but now he's vulnerable. And he's in front of everyone, and, he, and and just like it's my favorite scene. Like if I if I were to ever act, and I would study that scene, and I would want to recreate that, and that would be my audition tape because the I just love everything that's going on, and just you know it's just it's switching between mediums and close-ups, but it's like one fixed angle, and I just love the lighting. It's just it's just it's like a spotlight, and Daniel Day Lewis's character is just on that spot. Uh, the dialogue between the two when uh, Paul Dano's character is just, you know, like, you admit what you've done. like And he's, like, just loving the attention. And he's, like, finally getting his... Uh, his he can now he can hit back. And I just love that whole scene. And it's just the... the like, the, like, the simple cinematography. Like, yeah, very similar to um, that scene in Boogie Nights. Uh, it's only cutting so we could see Paul Dano's reactions and his character... As a po- and then we get that close up. Uh, he really used, and and that's another thing about Phantom Thread that my notes, the cinematography, like I mentioned earlier, he's I think he's a little subdued, but in a good way, because I think he went out, he went very ambitious for the master. Not so much, I mean, camera work, but also, uh, just just kind of really experimenting with his films, especially with Inherent Vice, and. One thing I noted, looking at just looking at my notes, the cinematography, not a lot of you know wide like the only wide shots are establishing shots, and if there's if there is a wide shot with characters in it, it's to show that they're the only ones in this open expansive spot. Uh, so there's a lot of medium shots to close ups, uh, even extreme close ups, especially like focusing on the sewing yeah. and uh, things like that, which you you need in this film. But I. I think that he, this is he is now like t- he is at the helm, and Daniel Day Lewis is not stealing the show. He's just helping uh, P.T. Anderson like along with his story. Uh, he's yeah, like I said, he's not stealing the show. He's helping along. Well, I ha- I have a question that I'm I'm gonna look it up as I'm talking to you because you know you mentioned it, the only wide shots were establishing shots. Uh, 
could this be because you look at you look at the grandiose of of the master i mean that's uh, mm-hmm. a number of different locations i mean just shooting on that boat alone i mean that was that was something else but what i'm i'm curious and and i and feel free to edit this out if I'm, i just want to check the budget on phantom thread yeah if if that was like a, a yeah because i because again um, i mentioned at the beginning you know it's Unless he's financing these films himself, which I don't believe he is. Uh, let's see, fan. I mean, I can definitely there because, and that would make sense. Um, the film, like, I actually just watched this the other, like, yesterday, okay. so it's still fresh in my mind. Um, a lot, there's a lot of interior shots, um, mostly in uh, 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 what's it? Reynold Woodcock's Daniel Day Lewis's is his like studio and home. Uh, so there's there's that location. There's uh, his his countryside cottage. Um, maybe some exteriors that you can get in really any like small town in in London uh, or uh, in the UK. And and then there's the the biggest scene is maybe at like uh, after he um, uh, settles down with the character of Alma, uh, like their honeymoon. Uh, they. Uh, it's like in a ski resort lodge, right. and so like that's that's the biggest, um, like set that I had seen. Well, according to what I've just found, the budget for this film was thirty-five million, which I don't even know if I believe that. Just uh, from the <laughs> not not from the sense that the, it's a gorgeous looking film, but so no, I, I, maybe I, I've I've just proved myself wrong. Maybe this this is exactly the film he wanted to tell because he can. I don't think Daniel Day-Lewis is commanding a, a $5 million salary to do this movie. This is a passion project. $35 million is a... For, for a Paul Thomas Anderson film, That's to me, that's a lot of money. I mean, I know There Will Be Blood had to have cost more money than that. But when you look at a Blumhouse film, which they make for $5 million, and they, they look great these days. I mean, what can... Well, I mean, mm-hmm. Imagine what Paul Thomas Anderson could do with $35 million. So, no, I, I, I probably stand corrected there. He probably... This is this is exactly what he set out to do. I I was concerned that it was probably budget constraints hmm. that because because he's shooting in England or he's shooting in the UK. I mean, this is you know just to be a playground to film. I could imagine. Oh yeah, I, mean, I, I can only imagine. So okay, so I'm sorry. So I just went off a completely useless tangent there, but oh, I was no. curious. It's, I was it's curious. Okay. It's 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 something I think again. It's I think it's an interesting thing that people might not even consider. Is like, well, what's the budget? Like, is this a budgetary concern? Like, and him crafting as any good filmmaker crafting the budget into his story, and and so it doesn't affect it. Um, I I think it's. I, I'm trying to. I'm actually trying to look at my uh, my. I say. I say. I have it listed as problems, but you know, issues or just kind of things that I had about the movie. Um, I have one, two, three, four, five. I, I have five. Like I guess big, not concerns, just kind of like critiques. And um, so I'll just. I guess I just list them down. I feel like the film has a lot of setup but really no payoff for example you know sewing uh things into the dresses um i felt like that didn't really go anywhere i mean it's kind of like a quirk that the character has but in my opinion it didn't really go anywhere uh the relationship with his mother um throughout the whole film he's he's always constantly talking about his mother and like how much of an inspiration she is and like her his first dress was for his mother's wedding and when he's you know when he's uh, going through his first uh, bout of illness, he has a hallucination of his mother, 
and to me, I, I really like that dynamic, but I didn't really feel like it went anywhere. Um, I was like, well, why is she the inspiration? Um, another thing, another problem that I have with Paul Thomas Anderson is I, I, I compare him to Stephen King a lot in his writing in that I feel like both Anderson and King have, like, they, they are masters of their craft, and they can really set a scene but they sometimes don't know where to end. I didn't really... I, I got some of that from the Phantom Thread, but I really got that in the Master. But so, an example of um, of this film is when Alma was given uh, a surprise dinner scene and where Reynolds' character was, you know, just kind of a jerk about it. And just, you know, they had, like, a big f in like uh, on-screen fight. And... My big thing is, like, I get it, like, maybe it's, like, setting up that she's going to take the mushrooms and things like that, but we already knew that he was a controlling uh, personality and that if it didn't, if it wasn't in his do, if it wasn't because of his doing, that he was going to be a jerk about it. And so, I, I, I just kind of was like, okay, I don't really see where this, like, it can be trimmed. Um, I definitely had more of those scenes in The Master, especially. Well, um, if I could, just for a moment. That the... Um that oh, that's yeah. that's you've nailed it. I mean, that is true of since there will be blood on. I think that holds true to his films. He did that in Boogie Nights and he did that in Magnolia, but not to the extent in which he has in his latest films. Um every, mm -hmm. every scene, there was a, actually there was a few scenes that you're like, "Really? We're 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 still we're still on this." Punch drunk, punch drunk mm -hmm. love to me is a perfect example of that. that. That happens quite a bit in punch drunk love, but I think it's something he does more now. Uh, but it is a bit puzzling as to why. You're, so, so I just want to, I just want to tell you that point you brought up. I 100% agree with, and I think it's something that has happened. I think there will be blood was 2007. So, so there will be blood onward. I think has been that that's been yeah. not so much with Boogie Nights because again I think it's the most straightforward narrative film that he's told. Mhm. Mm and I and this I guess goes into a question that I I have for you. So what exactly is the Phantom Thread? Um I think that the film is good that it doesn't really answer this question, but there isn't really much in the film to kind of allow like a viewer to deduce. So like and it, I think it's more of like a movie buff would have to kind of really kind of dig into it and and then this kind of I it kind of goes into like well, am I just like pulling at strings and so like my interpretation I don't I don't know if the phantom thread is like a thing in sewing I actually tried researching it and I couldn't find anything um and maybe that was just the, my research methods but I took just from the context of the film that a phantom thread like especially with the sewing context is that you know maybe it's an it's a design so elegant it should it doesn't look like it should be held together so it's being held by a phantom thread so I was going under the uh, so that was what I think the thread is but then I was like okay well then what's the thread is it Alma's character who is kind of acting as this like constant muse who kind of when he starts to be really controlling she kind of sets him back to zero and it's just this never-ending cycle of uh which we should talk about their relationship too because i have some really interesting comments about that and i love their relationship or at least how well it's written but 
Yeah, so that's... But then is the Phantom Thread, like, his mother? Because she's the ultimate inspiration for everything that he does. Uh, yeah, so what's what's your opinion on the title Phantom Thread and what the meaning I mean, of that I, is? I, I, let's, let's just be completely honest. I have no idea. I mean, you've basically just spelled it out. I'm like, yeah, no. I, I, I looked I looked at Alma as being sort of the the inspiration behind the title, but I love what you said about, you know, something is made so perfectly and so it doesn't even look like it should be held together. That's beautiful. Like that's really good. Like so so maybe maybe it's an ambiguous title. Maybe we don't know what it what it means. Um let me ask you this though. Is it okay to not like a Paul Paul Thomas Anderson film? Yeah, I've, yeah. I think I, I think it's definitely like, like, you know, you like know. I said, like Inherent Vice is definitely a film that I would say is, is, is I have to keep watching it to have a better opinion but, of but it. That's, but you should, I think yeah. that's definitely so that, one. And that's, I guess that's. I should tell you about the time that I learned when I was when I was younger. I I blindly followed. I used to say I would blindly follow filmmakers into the theater, no matter what they made, and no matter what the film was, yep. good or bad, I loved it. I loved it. And and I always, for me, it was Steven Spielberg. I was like like most mm-hmm. people out there. I mean, I, that's not some abstract director nobody's ever heard of. Like that was you know I grew up on Spielberg films, and no matter what he did, it was it was a masterpiece. No matter what he did, and then I started seeing movies that I started seeing some of his movies that I I was like, whoa! I'd... Let me start again there, Mike, just for a second here. Um, mm-hmm. Then 2004's The Terminal came out. And I remember leaving the theater and going, that was that was awful. Like, I didn't like that movie at mm-hmm. all. And I realized, at that moment, it is... I guess it's it's possible that, uh, you know, my favorite director could make a, make a, a terrible movie. And that was, the, like, the, the, <laughs> the break up, breakout moment where I realized it's possible for anyone to make a movie that I'm not going to enjoy. And for, for Paul Thomas Anderson... I, I went through a string of his films where I loved it, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood. Um, the Master, I mentioned I didn't really like it the first time I saw it, but that was because I didn't have the right context for it, then I saw it loved it. I don't like Inherent Vice at all, and you said you've seen it multiple mm-hmm. times. I've seen it once without a desire to go back and see it again. Um, with Phantom... Th- I'm sorry, I- go ahead. I was I was gonna add it's not to interrupt, but I, the only re- I'm I'm not gonna lie the only reason I went back to Inherent Vice was because my twin brother was insisting he's like dude I under I understand exactly where you're coming from I'm not gonna lie first time I watched it I fell asleep because yeah. I was like I I my brain hurts just from fi- figuring it out but that's the the and like I'd be with you and be like that I'm done I gave it a shot maybe yeah. ten years from now I'll try again but. The only reason I did it was the insistence of my brother, and you know sometimes you need that. But I, you, I completely understand, completely understand not wanting to return to inherent vice. So then, what happens with me is I start the podcast, and all of a sudden I'm studying the behind the scenes of, of film, and I'm and I'm realizing how much work goes into making a movie, and I'm actually starting to study film filmmaking techniques. You know, simple 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 techniques. You know. What, what, what a t- type of shot is and everything. And then I start watching movies from a different eye. I, I see, start moving, looking at movies in a different way. And I'm watching Phantom Thread. And I'm just, I just think it's the most beautiful thing I've seen for like the first 20 minutes. Because I, I'm just, this is, a, this is a gorgeous movie. 
And then it just, the pace of the film and, and it, it, it all sort of just imploded on me to where I was, I found myself tuning out. And I know that's a terrible thing to say about a Paul Thomas Anderson film, but I realized that it's okay to do that. And, um, I need, like I said, when we were, we were communicating earlier today, I have to watch it again. I have, I have to oh, watch yeah. it again. Um, but it wasn't satisfying to me like some of his other films. And I don't mean inherent vice that movies that, that that's, that's on the do not watch <laughs> list. Um, yeah. But whereas the master, I thought was a visually stunning film that I just didn't understand the context and went back and researched and researched and researched and, and watched it again. And said, this is an unbelievable film. With Phantom Thread, I'm I'm not sure that I want to see the film again just because it doesn't have a pay it doesn't seem to have the, that payoff that we're looking for. I don't know. I'm very confused about the movie, as you can tell. I'm having issues with it. Yeah, I I think I think definitely it has element. Like I think I I would agree with you until we get into the relationship right. with them. I think. My favorite scene – well, I think the relationship is very interestingly written, but it's it's like it all comes together and really hits home at that last scene when you really get that – like this – like – that that power struggle. But it's, 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 it's different because now instead of two people battling it, uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character accepts it. And I just – and I love and, – and like uh, let me see the notes on that, on that scene. I'm just scrolling down to it. So – um so we have the scene at the very end when um Daniel Day Lewis's character is kind of like at his breaking point. Oh, uh, well he thinks is his breaking point. Like he's kind of like reset to his like worst. And and in this mind it's it's almost like all right, like I have to like it's my time to poison him again and reset him to zero. But the scene is interesting like f- before this like she poisons him in that he has a moment with his sister uh Cyril and and I actually got this interpretation this time. So he's essentially just like, uh, she's like really just breaking us apart. Like she doesn't belong here. I can't work. And then Alma walks in behind and listens to it all. Now, when I first saw this film, I thought Cyril was, you know, just being evil and trying to like, uh, you know, end the relationship. Yeah. But on on this watch, I had a different interpretation because Cyril defends Alma throughout the film and actually like kind of gives her some smiles like very subtly and that she warms up to her and so my interpretation this time when when um alma walks in and she hears him like kind of like bashing her and the look that cyril gives alma is not my interpretation goes from like see like like get out this isn't your place to giving a blessing of poison and and, and and this goes into you know when she when he's first poisoned, you know Alma is acting shady as hell. Like she's like, oh, I'm gonna call the doctor. He's like, why are you calling the doctor? We don't need the doctor. He's not dying. He's like, I'm calling the doctor. And then when the doctor comes, he says like, get out. And Alma's like, yeah, get out. You heard him. Get out. And it's this power struggle of he like the doctor saying Mrs. Woodcock and Alma's not correcting him mm-hmm. and she's responding. So. Cyril knows, in my opinion, and at this point she recognizes the significance for, you know, her livelihood, her brother's work, that Alma is that catalyst that is needed. So, which I think is just great of his writing that she, like, Cyril gives gives this look of, go for it, you're good. And then it follows that scene of, 
and she decides to poison him again and and obviously he knew like just the way it's shot he's looking at her and she's caught like but what does she do she tells the truth and my first viewing i thought she was going to kill him and take over the business as the wife but and that and that goes into like the dosage has significantly increased it's not like some shavings of a mushroom it's like full-on like six or seven heapings of a mushroom um and but and then you get that dynamic of this is how it's gonna happen uh i want you on your back and tender and, and like reset you to zero and uh i and this is how it's gonna be and it's even better before she explains it he takes a bite but doesn't chew but he does this movement which i think is like just a i i don't know if this was in the script or if it's daniel day lewis um he points to her with the fork and I took that as, all right, balls in your court. What are you going to say? And then she she does the whole thing. He swallows and says, well, let me kiss you before I get sick. And that, to me, with the music swell, and it just kind of ties everything together. So for me, that final scene, like, I agree, I agree with you. Like, the beginning, like, the whole bulk of the film, you're like, okay, what's the payoff mm-hmm. of this? And if this scene wasn't there, I would be like, okay, it's just going to be some... Like if he if, if it just ended up with him with her poisoning him and it's just some endless cycle of he him not knowing i would agree with you that okay that could have been done better i don't really care like she's a manipulating like conniving person but the fact that he knows and says i like i love you for this that to me is so like psychologically intriguing yeah that's no that's an interesting that's that's definitely interesting I am, I'm, fr- I'm a little frustrated. I didn't get a chance to rewatch the film prior prior to us having this conversation. But um, I'm ch- I'm checking the time right now. I might I might I might pop that on when we're done. <laughs> so I've got I might have a little time. <laughs> I, I I was gonna I was gonna say um if if you ever find some time in your schedule um and you watch the film and you take some in depth notes, I would love to have an analysis of just um phantom thread with you because you know i could i i i mean i have my notes again but um you know just talking shop about you know the specifics of the film uh, if you ever have time you well, want to that, set not up. only that but i i would yeah. like to i would like to talk to you about dawn of the dead sometime i oh, would like to do a I whole show, show on romero's talk. work i did an episode on 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 the history of romero and uh you know we lost him recently and Oh yeah, I I did a whole episode just you know in in memoriam or like five quick five minutes just saying uh th- like just thanking him for his work. I dedicated my most recent short to him as well as David Lynch. Just two men that have really inspired me in so uh, many ways. Dawn of the Dead was the <laughs> I always say that's that was the 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 breakout movie for me as far as uh, how far a movie can go as far and I was not. Mm-hmm. I was not prepared to, when I saw it as a child, but then as an adult watching it, you understand the the actual themes of the movie. I mean, it was no mistake oh, that yeah. there was no. It wasn't by accident that that movie was filmed in a mall. Like, I mean, there's. I mean, and I I could take. I have to rewatch it and take some notes, but there is to know Romero is to understand he knew exactly what he was doing with that movie. And oh, as yeah, not to interject. I think. To to go off that, I'm pretty sure he got the location, yeah. then wrote the story around the mall with his uh, consumerism uh, yeah. like themes and uh, and and again, Dawn of the Dead. Like that's like I said, that's my favorite film. Uh, I know a lot about. I I'm actually looking over. I have two versions of the theatrical cut. Uh, I have the European cut. I have the 
extended version and special features i've seen many i've seen them all i can't, i've lost track and i've also watched all the films with the cast commentaries romero's comment like every commentary at least four times so there's the, i know a lot about the well, i've the been <laughs> kicking around an idea that this this might might be something you might be interested in I, i've always wanted to do a, a film commentary and but I, it's oh. I, I don't believe a film okay. commentary is something you can do by yourself. I think you have to. I think you have to bounce oh. bounce something off. So so maybe somewhere down the road, we'll do a commentary track for Dawn of the Dead, where I'll I'll more or less ask the questions and uh, to you. I'll I mean I'll let you sort of I'll, I'll I'll lead the conversation in a sense of okay this particular scene what are we looking at here Mike you know like that, that type of thing and and so just, okay. just again you can edit this out if you have to but I just it's an idea. But because because I, I want to be able to do that with with Jaws, and I want to be able to talk to somebody about the film Jaws. So so maybe we can kick kick that idea, uh, you know, down the road a little bit and, and see what see what comes out of that. Oh yeah. And I probably honestly won't cut any of this because I think anyone that listens, whether it's your viewers or whatever, if I like whatever viewers listen to me, it's it's nice to you know kind of sure, tease some sure. things out um, for future projects. But yeah, no, I uh, just having it on record i would definitely myself i'm sure my brother would love to because he also has very interesting uh you know takes on films as well um but no we it's something that we would definitely be interested in uh you know doing and whether that's you know the commentary tracks or um you know future episodes uh discussing like uh, like analyzing film, um like one thing uh it's it's funny when I, I was listening uh, most recent episode like recently I was listening to okay. was it and uh it I, I have a lot of strong convictions about it uh, i ex- I think I've done three episodes on this show, and I was really interested to see what you um and uh your your co-host i I believe what she had to say about it um and uh yeah i I, I love listening to it but yeah there's a, there's a lot of things that I have some pretty strong convictions that I would love to talk about film. Uh, well, listen, yeah, I'll, I'll, any, I'll have you on the show. This is, this is, I can already tell you that. Uh, this is, I, this has <laughs> been an awesome conversation, but uh, the, the other episode oh, we did yeah. and everything. So, uh, yeah, like, like it's not a question of if it's like, well, let's plan a few things out here. Let's, let's, because, oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I'd love to have you on the show at, just to talk about, I'm curious to know what you have to say about the the movie It. You know, for example, like I I could come up with a whole list oh, of things. Ooh. You know, we, we, we I got we some could things. dissect <laughs> a few of the episodes that I've done, and I'd love to hear some 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 other perspectives on them. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, like with It, um, I think in the episode, I think you mentioned that you didn't read the book or like it to its entirety. Um, it, I have a special relationship with it because. Um, I mentioned it in the sh- in the show, with, and especially with Brian. We did like um, we saw it again. Like it opened Friday, we saw it Thursday night, and we did like a preview podcast. Uh, funny enough, my my roommate and his girlfriend saw it with us, and we're like, well, we have two. We have like an hour and a half before this film. Like we see this, uh, Brian and I. Let's do. We were like, let's do like a, a preview. Like what our expectations, and and we're a little like self conscious. So we're like, uh, uh guys go sit in the other room so they sat in the other room while we recorded like an hour-long episode um but with the book i actually to get hyped for this movie i uh, i read the book in its entirety in like a month and a half last summer and uh and and again like i i kind of glossed over but my with it that was like the first adult book that i read 
and I didn't understand it. I was, I, I'm not going to lie, I was 12 years old when I read that book and should not have been reading it and I didn't understand anything. So, and like, it's funny, like when I went back last summer, I was like, wow, I should not have been reading this book. But I probably missed everything. But, you know, like I said, I, I, I do like, I try and do a lot of research into whatever, you know, movie I, I watch or uh, if there's any backstory, try and understand that story just so I can have a better appreciation for the but, film. Well, uh, Ray, my co-host, Rayana, Ray and I, we, we, both of us openly admitted, we did two episodes. We did one on the 1990 miniseries, and then we did, basically, the episode was always just going to be on the 1990 miniseries, because that was something I saw in 1990, mm-hmm. and uh, scared me to death as a, as a kid, and I, I really the history behind that uh, that miniseries because that was hugely popular and the success of that miniseries led to the ridiculously long tv version of the stand which i don't think is at near as mm-hmm. good as a lot of people give her credit for but that's a completely different story um but <laughs> we made it we made it clear from the beginning like we we have not read the books we're we're we're, we're look we're looking at these as film goers as movie watchers but i did reach out to a friend of mine who hosts a, a podcast called book versus movie and she is and she does this mm-hmm. whole series on stephen king so i did call her and said with a notepad i said what do i need to know about the book that like what what are the key points i need to know and she told me about everything including the infamous part that you know we're like okay so there's no way that's making it in the movie oh and, and yes. so <laughs> When Ray and I, we, we, we recorded a few minutes before watching the 1990 miniseries, which, oh, that was so painful to watch. I mean, you've seen it. <laughs> oh. oh, of course I've seen it. I have it on DVD the, the somewhere in my collection. The first half is great. The second half is just so much filler. It is just, but mm-hmm. So then we get to, we get to uh, you know, we're like, well, you know, we'll do an episode on the, on the 2017 one. But just to be clear, yeah, we, we've never read the books. I still haven't read the book, you know, um... Yeah, it's daunting. I'll get. I'll give anyone credit for that. It's oh, King, pretty daunting. King's books to me. Okay, here's here's my relationship with Stephen King books. When I'm reading a Stephen King book, which is very rare, uh, here's me. Let's get to it. All right, get to it. All right. Mm-hmm. I, get, I mean, he he paints such a vivid picture of every single little detail that's going on. At some points, I just get a little frustrated and go, "Okay, okay, I I, I know where you're leading this up to. This is leading up to. Please just get to it." Um, most recently, yeah. I was reading Mr. Mercedes, and 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 oh yeah, I knew what was going to happen. I mean, it was it was plain as day. I, I okay, I get, I know. I'm not going to spoil it if anybody hasn't read the book or seen that miniseries. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, I know exactly what's going to happen. But he just took it, just went on and on. Anyway, I'm rambling, Mike. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. This is this is this is this oh, is me okay. going on about <laughs> Stephen King taking his time with everything. Anyway, so I, I, I'm never going to read it mm-hmm. just because. Like you said, it it's daunting, and I know the uh, I basically I know the cliff you the know cliff the main, notes. Main, no, the so my points. question to you is, yeah, you you obviously did you like the 2017 version? Did did you like it? I okay. So the way I put it is that they did a lot of things right, but they missed the theme entirely in that uh, unity. Yeah. That's the big plot and that's what i the big draw of it for me so like wh- one thing is like uh it really like the book really nails that the kind of like like any like 
and like you guys were talking about it when you guys were uh, kids, like just going out on your bikes and just having fun, like Absolutely. not a care in the world. And 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 I think that's just a universal thing that you know everyone says like oh like cell phones are coming out like they're really changing childhoods. I mean, I grew up in the. I mean, I was a little late to the whole smartphone generation, and like uh, technology is always changing. But like my childhood, especially like young, t- like a teenager, uh, you know, like in the tw- uh, eleven to fourteen, like range, like that, like kind of that cusp moment when you go out and just like explore and like go outside. Um, that was essentially like what you guys were saying. I had a very similar childhood. Uh, you know, in the summers, going taking your bike, going you know to the lo- like the downtown. Um, Go into like at the pizza shop, getting some pizza. Going to the CVS, getting a drink. Going to the fields, play soccer, bat, playing sports, just being outside. Uh, b- we were big into paintball and airsoft, so we were outside. You know, yeah. being active as kids should do. And so the book really hammers that. But what's really interesting is that this theme of unity, and it's and it's like yeah, I think the kids in the in the movie and the screenwriters like they had great chemistry, but they weren't unified. Whereas in the book. So take, for instance, the house on Niebolt Street. That was something that I really wanted to be in the movie, and it was. Um, now, in the book, all the kids... This is, like, the first, like, big confrontation as the um, the Lucky Seven. And and so they go in, and and it's very similar setup in the in the movie where it's, like, no one wants to go in. And, and the Big Bill's, like, obviously the leader, and he convinces them. It, but in the book everyone's just like okay we're going we don't want to do this as any sane person would think like we don't want to do and they're children for that and they don't want to go in but they go in anyway because they're a group and um in the movie it's like all right who doesn't want to go in and everyone raises their hand it's like okay that's funny but then ev- and then there's only two uh eddie and richie are the only ones that go in with bill and and they do like the joke of like oh we drew straws like you're lucky it was it was uh, straws and not dicks and I was like ah oh, ha ha funny but the scene there's actually it's funny enough there's actually a scene where they draw straws in the book and um and it's not so much as it's a little different setup but so they they light a match and they put it in their hands and they draw the they draw the matches and whoever has the burnt uh, match doesn't do the activity and it turns out that all the matches by some cosmic force they can't explain none of the matches are burned and like they could eat they and beverly was holding the matches and she could see like people think she cheated she's like no like they can see the uh the uh the bird or the um like the, the charcoal in her hand from the match but it's like magically and cosmically uh not burned and that's like and they and and the book really plays into that like that unity like they're never gonna leave each other the movie completely missed that. They added the whole um, like damsel yeah. in distress. Like I get it. Like in the in the in the classic like movie arc, you need like characters at their lowest points. But breaking the group up is completely goes against the theme of the book. And they get and like the gang gets back together to save Beverly. Um, I so there, that was annoying. And then at the very end of the movie, I didn't like that the beatdown on Pennywise was a physical beatdown. Like, I described that that Pennywise was taking his lumps to get into the gang. And (laughs) because, like, there is, there is, like, a physical, like, battle. Like, they're, like, punching him, uh, punching it, like, the force that is it. But there's also a big cosmic... Now, good luck to filming that. (laughs) But there is this cosmic uh, 
like mental battle that Bill defeats Pennywise in as a kid and as an adult, which is what really like, which really uh, uh, weakens Pennywise. And so I was like, this kind of goes against everything. Like I'm like, okay, well, good luck with the next movie because you didn't set anything up other than they're just gonna go and like that's why Pennywise is so scary. Uh, Brian actually had it really said it really well in that in the book, pe- the clown is there to lure in the children and then the sh- and then like the truest fear form like the shape-shifting occurs in the movie it's reversed it's it's like this fear occurs and then the clown happens and it kind of gives the impression that pennywise is always a clown when that's that's not it's kind it's backwards it's not the case so just that theme of unity was completely missed in my opinion um but they but the heart was there and the passion was there, so I can give it a pass on that. But we'll see what I'm. I'm still really excited for the casting of season of uh, episode two or chapter two. Uh, Jessica Chastain, perfect role. Uh, I'm really excited to see what uh, James McAvoy has to do as Big Bill. Uh, I don't really know the yeah, other have... the other people that. Oh, uh, the guy James. Uh, he was cast as eddie he was in the wire he was uh season two of the wire he was in generation kill i've seen his, he was in tangerine uh i've seen him so we'll see how that works but everyone else i'm like okay we'll see what happens but that's it no it's interesting uh, yeah. and not to go too far into it but and i i caught a lot of hell for admitting that i left the movie before it was over that was that was a big thing in that podcast like people were like like tweeting at me ridiculously like how how, well okay so i I wish i would have screenshot it but one person said and i'm paraphrasing here i'm not going to quote it verbatim because i don't i i I can't do that but somebody said how can you review a film if you walked out of it before it was over and another person and, and 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 to my answer to that was well that was part of the review that I was so disinterested in what was happening that I was <laughs> like, okay, well, I don't need to see any more of this. But it, it, I, I got an attack kind of from all angles for it openly admitting that I like I got to the point where they got the group back together. You know, they're lowering down the well. You know, I was like, I know how this is going to end, and this is this is turning into a very tropey yeah, horror film that I just don't really. I, I got other things to do. I was like, I don't need, I don't need to stick around to the end of this. I was gonna say the only thing you really missed to be like, honestly, that's a fair assessment. You knew the kids were gonna survive, and you knew Pennywise was gonna get vanquished, and you just didn't care what the CGI butchery was gonna be. The only thing you, the only like true thing you really missed was seeing the the child actor that plays Georgie deliver one of the best acting really? okay. moments of the film. Okay. Like, I, honestly, that's the only thing you missed, uh, because uh, Pennywise takes the form of Georgie, and that's not mm-hmm. a spoiler of anything, because he literally is missing his arm from the beginning of the film. But what's so great about it, it's so emotional. Um, I saw, I was with my girlfriend at the time, or my ex-girlfriend, but girlfriend at the time, we saw it together, she was bawling her eyes out um, at this moment, uh, and and I actually talked to her dad, who was a big Stephen King fan, and actually loved the film. And that he was like, I honestly thought it was Georgie for a little bit. And that's like, that's like the beauty of the cinematography and the writing and the acting of that child. But then it just kind of goes downhill once that's done. You know, like you didn't really, I think that 
and, and another thing with it i think like i'm glad it's getting the praise it did but it's very overrated um it's not everyone's hailing it as like the next or a lot of i should i should say a lot of people were hailing it as the next you know uh game changing and horror and it's not it's really not it could have been but it wasn't and that's i mean that's and that's andy muschetti style i think in a lot of ways it really did like it brought energy back into like a very stagnant horror franchise. well i say that but then there's movies like it follows and uh the babadook and you know like get out yeah like horror films like that but you know it's it's something different that's not a horror franchise that is you know beat to hell but yeah to be fair the only thing you missed was the great which, child performance which is kind of like a dime in a I'll, dozen which but i would say go back and watch will, that scene I, and then I will you tell you this. stop the movie i saw the movie there was the day before i excuse me the day after i saw it in the theater uh hurricane a hurricane came right through where we live so much to the point that mm-hmm. the the town was preparing to the point where it was Saturday night opening weekend. I went to a four p.m. show and I was the only one in the theater. And yeah, oh yeah, I remember. I remember yeah, this from and, the and, uh, and it was story, IMAX, yeah. IMAX two D, and and oh, wow. you know when I told you I, I I think I mentioned it in the previous episode or maybe yeah it was the previous episode where I mentioned you know being terrified of you know Freddy Krueger and and. And not doing particularly uh-huh. well with jump scare movies as a whole. That being said, the scene where Ben is in the library and he's flipping through the book. In the background, mm-hmm. oh, in the yeah, background yeah, 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 yeah. out of focus is a woman who just about faces. I'm getting chills just thinking about this. And just starts staring at him. Yeah. And I... Yeah, I think yeah. it's the I, I noticed that too yeah. in the in the movie. I was alone. And yeah, you were alone, and I'm right? Going, yeah. What is going on? I mean that that I, I give credit to the movie. That legitimately scared me like just scared me to death. Because it was out of focus and I'm like, okay, and but it it never it never, it never materializes to, into anything. It's just this like out of focus in the background, you see a woman just about face just evil grin just staring at him. That to, to be to be fair, that scared me. The rest of the movie, not so much, but that part yeah. terrified me. I, that was my problem with with Muschietti as a director. Like I've like Mama was a pretty good film, but there's too much like reliance on like because true horror is the yeah. stuff that unsettles you. I actually saw a comedian that or like I, I watched a bit of a comedian that that described like jump scares in horror films as you know a comedian going up to people in the audience and tickling them and saying i made you laugh it's like well you're not wrong but like it's not a genuine laugh i think jumps like jump scares they have a purpose in in like horror films but when it's when a film is heavily reliant on jump scares like the um like the projector yeah. scene and for example that to me could have been v- like the, the beginning of that was very well executed with you know Pennywise like manifesting in and like manipulating the images and then they kick it and he's like just very blurry not there and then in my opinion it's ruined when he jumps out and starts crawling around the garage like a crab because I'm like well you just kind of ruined everything if you just cut the scene right there like okay what's like he's he's menacing he's he's like it's like he knows you're there and he's ready for you um and and like it seems like Muschietti 
has a lot of background, uh, like just details that you wouldn't necessarily see, but like you're as in the great words of uh, Red Letter Media, your eyes may not have seen it, but your brain did, and and like that's that's what like you notice. So like there's the the uh, the things that I've noticed was there's the um there's like you said the librarian yep. or the, I think it was the librarian, but the woman that about faces and, and like out of focus. Um, when Richie is talking about his fears uh the clown is actually bill skarsgård so there's an act there's a theory that pennywise had manifested as a different clown and was actually beckoning towards like the group of kids like kind of like uh, a prelude to uh i know you're there like but like that's that subtle thing that you that you wouldn't necessarily like your brain caught it but you necessarily didn't you just unsettled um and yeah, no, there's just like little like background things that I think he's really good at. But ultimately, like the executives wanted this. I think, in my opinion, they were pushing for like you have to you have to make bounds and like, like leaps and bounds with the with the horror film industry. Like make something new, and he did. But I think when you're heavy, like over reliant on CGI, it just dates your film. And because nothing beats no, practical effects, you. in my opinion. Like The Exorcist, The Exorcist is still scary as hell because. Well, that director was crazy, but he used practical effects and and really got genuine scares out of people. Like just things you can't explain. But then, it and even and I think like even practical effects. Like I for some reason I'm thinking of Train Spotting. Uh, when he's going through heroin withdrawal and you see the the dead. I call it the dead baby moment when the baby's crawling on the ceiling, and then his head turns around. Like yeah, that looks fake as hell. But it's unsettling because yeah. there's that uncanny valley because you know it's fake. But, you know, and I just, I think practical effects just age better, either if they age better or they just give the film a, a oh. sense of character as opposed to You don't to have CGI. to get me going on this debate. I'm with you a hundred, I'm with you a hundred percent. I, I, I am a huge fan. I've got, uh, Phil, Phil Joanna, who's been on the show multiple times, him and I are planning an episode in which we're going to release the top 10 most, the top 10 most epic non-CGI films of all time. And who Oh, non no, no, films. No, like we're, we're putting together okay. a comprehensive list of the 10 films that you need to see that don't have an ounce of CGI in them. Now, obviously most of these are going to be from the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, but oh, of course. it's been fun putting this list together. And this just goes back to a time when, you know, uh, 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 you know what? I didn't want to get into it. Mike, I'll get, I'm just going to get going here. But I'm, I'm just going to get going on and on and on. The um, movies were made. They were made on big, giant sets. You know, they were, they were, there were thousands mm -hmm. of, tens of thousands of extras in the case of something like Dr. Zhivago or something. You know, like, it's just... So, yes, mm -hmm. when movies rely too heavily on CGI, and, and going back to it, I, I feel like it was mandated that he had to have some of those jump scares in there. They look at the, the success of films like The Conjuring and, and things like that. And I, I, they, well, mm -hmm. that's what sells. So you got to go with that. You got you to shoehorn those in somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and on a side note, you mentioned Red Letter Media. I actually have it on the TV over here. I've got their uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull video playing. I, I was... I was about to when you mentioned Spielberg and you're like, oh, like the Terminal, like I could, I realized he made a bad oh, film. Oh yeah, no. I was like, well, what about? Yeah, but that, but what yeah, about his Indiana something. Jones? Terminal <laughs> came out four years before Indiana Jones, so that was the moment I oh, realized yeah. that it was possible for for my my favorite director to make a bad film. 
Yeah, I, I saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the theater. Oh, we we all I did. Saw we all Menace did in the, <laughs> in the theater on midnight, a midnight screening. There's there's so many of those stories of just I saw it too, and we got what we got. Um, oh, I yeah. Before we, uh, you know, because we've been going for an hour and a half, and I feel like we have we have so much sure, material yeah. for like future episodes, whether it's your show or here. Uh, you mentioned I don't know if it was this episode or the last. You mentioned you don't um, you don't like to see uh, films in the um, in like cinemas right. so much anymore. Um, and so and I I mean I I've I've obviously heard your your uh, your episodes detailing that, but. Um, what, so what is your you know why is that the case? Well, there's so few people like us out there that that we're mm-hmm. going to a movie because we're we're genuinely interested in seeing the story that's that's going to be told. For some reason, and I haven't figured out why. And it, this is not a this is not me being forty saying teenagers are are, are ruining every everything because adults are doing the exact same thing I'm about to describe. So this is not a generational thing. This is, there's been a monumental shift in, uh, gosh, I don't want to get too contra- controversial here, but there's been a monumental shift in uh, what I will call entitlement in the sense that if somebody's going to plop down $13 to see a movie and then spend an additional $15 per person on concessions, then they've got the right to do whatever they want. Because I've rented this seat for the next two and a half hours. And I'm going to do whatever I want. And mm-hmm. movie theaters are so desperate for revenue that they're not going to turn any paying customer away. They're just going to they're just, they're just going to allow it to happen. And, of course, I'm talking about cell phone usage. I'm talking about talking during the movie. These, these are things that didn't happen. I mean, of course, they did happen. But when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, all the way into my late 20s, before the advent of the smartphone, when you went to a movie, people were there because they wanted to see the movie. The theater has now become mm-hmm. the the new mall. It's the new place to hang out. It's weird because you're paying, you're paying for the privilege to hang out with your friends and talk and, and be on your phone. But the same way, and I'm using a great analogy here. Here's here's a just don't mind me because I've got a brief brief little story for you here, real quick. So, so, oh yeah, so, go for so it. I love them. <laughs> back in 2009, uh, I woke up one day, and I've told the story on the podcast, so I'll par- I'll paraphrase it. I won't tell the whole thing, but I, I woke up one day at my apartment on a Saturday morning, and I was logging into my computer to find out that I didn't have an internet. My internet wasn't working, but my cable TV was mm-hmm. working, which didn't make any sense because it was bundled through the through the same cable provider. So, I'm sorry. Oh, uh-huh. sorry. No. Oh, I, okay. Also, yeah, yeah, I disagree. Uh, okay, yeah. so it was it was uh, bundled through the same provider. So I, I, I of course, make the phone call, you know, okay. the 800 number, blah, 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 uh, get through the automated system, finally get a technician on there. I'm like, hi, oh, yeah, you know, my internet's not working. Give him my name. Give him my account number. He says, oh, I've got to direct you to the security department. What? What are you talking about? Directs me to the security department. Guy gets on the phone. I give him my name, all this stuff. He says, well, here's the thing. Uh, you've had a complaint filed against you by the Motion Picture Association of America for uh, sharing an illegally downloaded movie. And I said, well, I haven't shared an illegally. Da- I don't download movies. I don't 
torrent movie. This is, I think, it's before torrent. This was this is Torrington. Tor- I'm 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 a little tired, so I apologize. I'm not getting the words out correct. So I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't I don't download and share movies. He goes, well, somebody from your IP address has been sharing movies that have been illegally downloaded. The Motion Picture Association of America has filed a a, a grievance against you. And I says, well, what happens next? He goes, well, we're on a three tier system. So basically what's going to happen is I'm going to give you a verbal warning and that's going to be that boom, your internet's back on. If it happens again, your internet will be suspended for one month. If it happens a third time, your internet, you will never be allowed to have internet with us again. So, Oh, okay. Come to Hmm. find out it was my roommate. It was my roommate at the time. Um, the movie in question was what happens in Vegas, the Ashton Kutcher film. So, I mean, yeah, I I, I didn't want to go down for that one, but, um, so, yeah. So, so wow. (laughs) The motion picture association of America has got the power to reach out and touch you as an individual. If you do something wrong, I'm like, man, they are a seriously powerful organization. They're a lobbyist firm based in Washington, DC, by the way, people don't know that or not. They're actually not based in Los Angeles. Um, so you fast forward five or six years later, and the cable companies wouldn't dare turn your internet off. They won't do it. Their policy is completely shifted because everybody is dropping cable, and they need their internet subscribers. So they've told the Motion Picture Association of America, pound sand. We don't care if our people are sharing or downloading or whatever like that. That's your problem. You need to go after them as an individual. We're not going to shut their internet off anymore because we need the revenue. So the same thing is happening with movie mm-hmm. theaters now. Now, you, you'll see all these mm-hmm. wonderful you know, trade papers that Avengers has made $2 billion worldwide. It's the third or fourth highest grossing film of all time and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is movie theater attendance is down steadily year after year. The money's still coming up because the theater ticket prices keep going up. Okay? So now... Mm-hmm. It's out there. The secret is out. You can do whatever you want in a movie theater. They're not going to throw you out. They're not (laughs) going to kick you out. They're not going to prevent you from coming in because they need the revenue. Because the theater-going experience, as we know, is dying. And it's only a matter of time where people like you and people like me and people that are all about actually watching the movie are going to say, enough is enough. I've got a nice TV. I've got a nice surround sound system. I can wait the six to eight weeks for a film to come on video on demand. 20 years ago, a movie would come out on video eight to nine months after a theatrical release. Now they can't wait to get it on video on demand. So that's my theory. And I have all the proof in the world to to basically back that up. All you have to do is listen to movie theater rants parts one through seven to understand like this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. So that's... Yeah. um, And... I agree with you, like, the paradigms of movie experiencing or, like, movie watching or movie going are completely changing. I actually, I think it's, it should be an interesting, like, anthropology, like, um, study, you know. One of my professors at my school, he was focusing on the, um, he was anthropology, and he was focusing on the paradigm shift of, like, a let's play culture in video games. And now that we're having this discussion, I was like, well, what about, like, film-going experience, you know? And that's why I love The Roadshow, and I think it's why Tarantino did it for The Hateful Eight, uh, was that... Or, like, or like Paul Thomas Anderson, he, while he also does roadshows as well, is because, you know, you can think back to, you know, 
mid like the 1940s or 1950s like these big grand epics these huge like you just see people in uh, uh, in tuxedos and like just decked out to go see a film or like like I always think of like Ben Hur or the Ten Commandments and and then like you can start to see that shift when you know I think mm-hmm. of classic as Star Wars you know just l- literally just like masses herds of people just like going into the like into the theater and now I th- I I haven't seen crowds like that for anything I mean obviously I, I don't live in you know LA or things like that uh, I live on the East Coast you know in the Philly area but I haven't when I see uh, when I see I mean I guess like the hateful eight like that but that wasn't like people were showing up you know as even as the film went on I have a funny story that I went out that people can listen to in the in that uh, in that episode but like people were walking in when the overture was playing and I was like there's so even then like even film goers like like people that that understand that they're seeing an experience there's no there's like a sense of decency that is losing or that is being lost in that it's like movie starts at let's say three o'clock you should be in your seat by at the latest 255 not 308 and the overture is is almost about to end or the uh like the movie's about to start um can i can i tell you a a, a quick funny story about seeing avengers which which by the way oh yeah sure you've listened to my show like i'm not a marvel guy i don't subscribe to the cult of marvel as i like to call Mm -hmm. it they're fine they're fun movies. They they they're they're clearly serving a purpose because they're they're each one of them's making a billion dollars a piece. But who am I to be angry? I, I'll take I'll take one percent of that. I'd be I'd be happy. But two things. One, when I saw that movie, I'm not fully invested in the characters. It was like I was at a sporting event. To use it to use something you know, it's like I was at an Eagles game. Okay, people, people. People I'm the exact were same way. I completely and laughing understand. and having a great time. I was like, okay, but to your point about people coming in late, I have a thing about people sitting next to me. So, I, it, it, yep, I, you get yep. your two. You so get your two, I buy your two, two seater, and uh, for a reason. I mean, for a reason. I mean, I I don't mind spending an extra. In this case, it was IMAX, extra sixteen dollars. Movie starts ten minutes in the movie. People are still piling into the theater and i didn't really touch on it too much in the avengers episode but six or seven times like people come in they realize where their seat's at then they see me like half the way up empty seat next to me guy comes up hey can i sit there no 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 i mean it's just (laughs) it just yeah i'm and then you're and then you're suddenly the jerk well that happened during the force awakens before they had assigned seating I, I only I'd only bought oh, right, one right, ticket, right. and yeah. I, I I denied a lady an opportunity to sit next to me because she was standing in front of the the crawl the crawl the actual <laughs> description. I've been waiting thirty years to find out what happened, and this lady's blocking my way. Going, can I sit there? I said, no, mm-hmm. no, my girlfriend's get my girlfriend's here. She's she's out there. And then at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. I completely forgot about that interaction, and the credits are rolling, and I just see that lady just standing at me, just staring at me with the empty seat next to me. I was like, oh, so. Well, F- Philly Philly has uh, a few sayings that we could say right okay. to her, but uh, we won't repeat them Fair on enough. the show. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, um, I get. Yeah, we've been talking for an hour and a half. We could, you know, talk for another hour or four. Like I've been having a great time, but 
Yeah, it's getting kind of late, and uh, yeah. you mentioned you were getting a little tired, but uh, and you, it's, you had a long day of work, so we'll start up. We'll start closing this up. Uh, we have, yeah. So I actually was so for the description of this episode, uh, I I I wanted to un, I was like, let's keep track of what we talked about. So it originally we we said we were gonna have a discussion about Paul Thomas Anderson, which we did. But in that discussion, we also talked about uh, personal stories, Marvel, Tarantino, Terry Gilliam, it, practical effects, and the politics of movie sure. theaters. <laughs> and that's just what I wrote down. Um, definitely an awesome conversation. Uh, I, it's like I said, I'm always down. Even uh, if if you ever just want to be like, hey, you want to have a talk? It doesn't have to be on the record. I am more than willing to have. A, a two-hour conversation with Absolutely. you talking about films and anything Absolutely. under the sun now, about. Let this, me ask but, you this: uh, yeah. Can you send me some of the work you've done, some of the short films you've done? Okay, oh yeah, so, and they're um, they're available yeah, on YouTube. Uh, I I yeah, I'll definitely I'll definitely do that. Uh, I definitely want to for anyone that's listening. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's I'll send you the link directly, but uh, just to plug it, it's uh, Amateur All Tours on YouTube. Um, sa- same as the the name of this uh, this podcast. Uh, Brian and I both share it. Um, I think he has two on the channel as well. I have four, and it's honestly it goes to my my first short film that I made uh, going into my sophomore year of college to my most recent one, which I finished uh, like three two and a half three weeks ago that I had actually for uh, a film class. Uh, so yeah, I'll de- but I'll definitely send that your way. I also I do want to say. I, I this is funny that I have to preface this, but I am in a stable frame of mind. I do not uh, take any mind alter. I do not take drugs, and um, I uh, I am comfortable where I am okay. in my mental stability. Uh, I feel like I always have to preface that. That's awesome. Um, so so there's no warnings out there. Yeah, my my parents have seen them. They're like, are you okay? And I'm like, yep, I am a okay. Awesome. But yeah, I'll definitely send them your way. And uh, but yeah, so and uh, yeah, I'd appreciate any any constructive feedback. If if you don't like a short, let me know. I, I can take because I know that's another thing. I, I know um, someone like you, like another film buff. Um, like I like I appreciate praise, but I also want to learn and grow as a filmmaker. And I know that you won't attack me personally. You will give me constructive uh, feedback, and and I won't be so and like I I know some people get it. Uh, because I know, like you, you know, some people can attack you personally and not your yeah. work, and that's not fair. But I know you won't do that, so I'll definitely send it your way. Well, here's my promise to you: I will not be watching them on my phone. I will be watching them on my on my flat screen. So, or or or, or, or should is the desired viewing method the the phone? Like, what what do you recommend? I was planning on what I. I th- I actually would probably recommend watching that on uh on your big screen. Yeah. Okay. Um, because that's I, I because I I know some things are definitely like meant for a phone. Uh, it's not. I think found footage would also like especially in the modern age would be good. Um, if you want good horror anthology stuff on a or like horror series on YouTube, I got you covered on that. Um, but uh, and that I feel like is more for your phone. But definitely for these, I think I would love to see it on a big screen. But I think the bigger the screen, the better. Um, so and it's yeah it, it may unsettle you just think David Lynch okay no for yeah, I'm good I'm, the I'm first excited few ones. I'm so excited. definitely but yeah so <laughs> all right well thank you for so much for having me on Mike I really really appreciate oh, it yeah I just and I just wanted to say uh, just to give you this most synth, synth, 
synth- uh, sincere. Let's, let's we're both tired. Thank I you. think it's it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost it's midnight. Just, We've been talking for a while. So, and this this yeah, isn't just, just an hour and a half. We we did, we recorded earlier. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, just like straight through. But just wanted to say, just thank you so much for you know reaching out, entertaining the idea of having a conversation, uh, you know, establishing a connection. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it it and it just speaking as a fan, it really goes a long way. And like I said, when I first started listening to you, uh, like going on two years ago i never would have thought that i'd be you know sitting down and having a close to like two and a half hour conversation with you about movies and and just having a just a blast doing it well i i can say this mike thank you for reaching out to me when you when you wrote to me on instagram a month and a month or two months ago uh it was awesome. Just, just what you wrote. You, you were, you, you made it clear right away that you, you absolutely, you love the show, and that meant everything to me. And I was like, and when you asked me if I wanted to come on your show, there wasn't even any hesitation. It was like, absolutely, I, I want to absolutely talk to this guy. I'm so glad I did, and I know that we'll have many conversations in the future. So thank you so much oh, for having I, me on, and uh, I, I hope uh, uh, a lot of the my listeners that are hopefully listening to this are going to start becoming your listeners, and uh, we'll. We'll just get a little community built. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to working with you in the future, Dana. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. So just for here's the, the things that come. I can't yeah, absolutely. wait. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. And uh, hopefully tune in tune in to the next episode of Amateur Tours and How Is This Movie Podcast. And uh, everyone have a nice night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur All Tours. Cover design was created by Sarah Jacobs. You can find more of her work at her own website, Digital Adventures. The opening theme, Dreams, is composed by Joachim Karid. This composition was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Sarah and Joachim's work. They are really great and deserve the attention. If you want to drop us a line, which we full-heartedly support, please feel free to contact us at our email, theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is one word. You can also find us at Twitter at amateuraltourspod. Once again, thank you for supporting the show. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you once again.